from the sports of the SecondCity.com studios, it's the Second Winded Podcast. Now, here's your host, Brad Robinson. Welcome in to the Second Winded Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Robinson. As we do every week, we've got a busy one this week. We're going to talk to Terry Keshner. He's a sports anchor for WBBM 780 AM and 105.9 FM. We're going to talk some White Sox and Bulls with Terry. Also going to stray from sports for a few minutes at the end of the show. And I'm going to share with you my thoughts on the retirement of David Letterman. He's a guy who I grew up watching, who I think is the best all-time late-night talk show host. Uh, Dave will be sorely missed, so we're going to talk a little bit about his impact on me as a viewer and my thoughts watching him sign off this week. But first, the Blackhawks drop Game 3 to the Ducks at the United Center. And can somebody please tell me, please tell me, why I saw number 23 on the floor at the United Center? Why Chris Versteeg was suited up for this hockey game? This was a game of inches, literal inches. And why the Blackhawks, when they're already shorthanded, granted, they're shorthanded on defense, not necessarily on the offensive side of the puck, but it's still shorthanded. Why possibly the least suited player who's seen a significant amount of time this season is in uniform for a game of this magnitude? When you've got Tavo Teravainen scratched, you've got Antoine Vermette scratched. Hell, I think I might even rather see Daniel Carcillo on the ice than Chris Versteeg. I know that's a little bit crazy. I actually never really want to see Daniel Carcillo on the ice in a Blackhawk sweater, ever. But what does Chris Versteeg bring to the table that those other two guys, that Teravainen, and Vermette don't bring. He can't skate. He's not a good puck handler. He doesn't have a good shot. He's not strong on the defensive side of the ice. In a game so close, and a series so close, you cannot afford to not have the best suited players on the ice. Tavo Teravina brings speed. He brings puck handling. He brings a wow factor. Yeah, he's still a little bit raw, but he brings things that Chris Versteeg simply doesn't. And he can score once in a while, which again, Chris Versteeg cannot. Antoine Vermette, they made a big move during the season to bring in Vermette, and he's spending game three of this series on the bench. And in the third period, you hardly even saw Marcus Kruger, a guy who wins you faceoffs, a guy who's incredibly strong defensively, a guy who knows how to get the puck and hold the puck and keep the puck away from the defending team. All three of those guys should be on the ice ahead of Chris Versteeg. Now, I'm not saying that's the reason the Blackhawks lost this game. Frederick Anderson was fantastic. Standing on his head, especially in the closing minute or so of that game, he was lights out. 
but maybe it's different if you have one extra threat on the ice. And Chris Versteeg does not offer that threat on any level. I don't want to see a red jersey wearing 23 at the United Center unless I'm watching old videos of the Bulls. When Coach Q sat Versteeg earlier in the playoffs, that's when the Blackhawks' fortunes really started to turn around. He slows everybody down. I think Q has a lot of explaining to do. I don't understand this decision. And I'm going to be very curious to see if Q goes back to what he was doing before for Game 4 and puts Versteeg back on the bench and brings back Tara Vinen or brings back Antoine Vermette. It's a decision that just doesn't make sense. And usually I'm in favor of Q in most cases. Yeah, He's made some questionable decisions, of course, any coach does. But he's a guy who's brought us two Stanley Cups in this city and who's had the Blackhawks on the cusp a number of other times. But this one just makes no sense. You can't afford against a team like the Ducks to not have your best players on the ice. And Q made a conscious decision to not do that. We'll see what he's got in store for game four. But if it includes 23 being on the ice for meaningful minutes, I'm afraid we're going to see more of the same. We're going to see an offensive rush that is slowed down by number 23. It just doesn't make sense. All right, let's get to this week's guest. Joining me now, he's a quadruple threat for CBS Radio's WBBM 780 and 105.9 FM. He's a writer, an editor, a reporter, and a sports anchor. You can find him on Twitter at TK9710. He's Terry Keshner. Hey, Terry, how you doing? Hey, Brad. I'm great. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So the uh, the White Sox are back hovering around 500 after a stretch that saw them go uh, six straight. They won eight of ten in that stretch. Uh, they stumbled a bit against Cleveland, but what's been the big difference we've seen between the team that's going on now and what we saw earlier in the year. Yeah, well, I think that really the, the, the pitching has been a lot better, and uh, what we're seeing now is what we hope to see, what Sox supporters hope to see uh, pretty much uh, you know, from the beginning of the season. You know, the, the, the pitching lineup the Sox have is talented. You, know, you have Samarja, you have Sale, you have Quintana. When those guys come through, you know, that's three really good starters, and the Sox have a much improved bullpen of course, um, with Robertson and, you know, Zach Dukes had his ups and downs. But uh, these guys have been pitching a lot better, and the offense is coming through, too, so they're, they're, that's not too bad. Uh, you know, they lost last night, and as you mentioned the night before, but before that, uh, in their six wins, uh, these are the runs they gave up. Two, two, six, three, three, one, right there. That's not too bad. So the Sox, at the beginning of the season, entering the season, were hoping to rely on this pitching staff, and they have been lately, and that's made the difference. And now back one game below 500, but uh, we'll take that after that miserable, miserable start, you know. So Chris Sale and Jeff Samarja have both struggled a little bit, and I think with Sale, uh, it's something you probably could have expected coming off an injury. He missed a lot of spring training, so wasn't really ready for the season to start. A lot of times with pitchers, it takes a while to kind of get into game shape, but uh, the Samarja struggling has been a little bit surprising. Yeah, yeah, it, it has been, and 
you know, it's one of those things. I think you look back and you think, okay, Samarja is this uh, terrific pitcher. You know, he was this hot commodity uh, in the off season. You know, the, the big deal sending him to Oakland last year. Uh, but then you go back and you you look at Samarja, and throughout his career, you know, he hasn't always been this frontline pitcher. You know, he's had his ups and downs uh, with the Cubs. Brad, you certainly are aware of that. So, you know, I think that something that maybe people uh, kind of put in the back of their mind a little bit, you know, that, that, that they were not thinking about, that Samarja has not always been this all-star pitcher that we've seen in the last couple of years with the Cubs and with Oakland. So I think there was this, uh, this fear that maybe he was, you know, reverting to form a little bit. But, uh, but I think he's, he's coming around now, and now, now the White Sox are starting to see the, uh, the hard-throwing south setter that they were really hoping for when they got Samarja in the offseason. So Carlos Rodon has three starts under his belt. Uh, he's had a bit of a mixed bag of success. Some control issues have really hurt him. Uh, is this something where we're seeing a young pitcher who's still just kind of trying to find his footing, or is this symbolic of something that might be a little bit of a larger problem? I, th- I think I think it's a young guy trying to find his footing. Everyone says that this guy has so much talent, but you're right with the, the walks uh, have been troubling so far this year. Uh, walked 19 guys compared to just uh, 21 guys that he struck out. So. I'm thinking that it's a guy who's talented but nervous so far. You know, just not quite has his footing as I like the way you put it that way. That uh, I, I think he's just not quite adjusted to major league pitchers just yet. Pardon me, major league hitting just yet, and he's not getting hit too badly. But I, I think the walks is a sign of nervousness, a sign of a guy just being green. When, you, when a guy who has been built up like he has been, and he has so much talent, and then he's not throwing strikes. I think that's a sign more of just, you know, a sign of nerves, a sign of guy just, you know, getting his feet wet, you know. Of course, you know, we hope that. We all know if he continues to walk a lot of guys, he won't be around too long. But I don't think a guy has this much buildup if he walks a lot of guys. I think guys who get this much buildup throw strikes. So, you know, we'll see. But certainly the walks have hurt him a lot so far. So there are really high hopes for Avi Garcia entering the season. And so far he's been really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ivy Garcia is, is, is a guy who I think that people kind of forgot about. You know, he had that bad injury last year, and then he was out for so much of the season. And people forgot about him. Then he came back uh, late last year, much, much earlier than expected. And, um, you know, he, he just just hit, hitting great so far this year, 329 with an OBP of 369. And I think that um, he's a guy who's, I, I think you have to say he's a bit of a, uh, a surprise. And going into the season, people thought, of course, Abreu and then the new guys, uh, the LaRoche, and then, uh, of course, Adam Eaton returning. But Avi Garcia has been a bit of a surprise, even though he had a lot of buildup before. I think he was kind of a forgotten guy. But, yeah, if he can continue to hit like this, and then Abreu is just hitting better and better, he's on a streak. And Adam Eaton, you're starting to see him come around, really producing those runs like he did for so much of last year. Well, then the Sox, yeah, then you have a lot more hope, a lot more offense. Terry, one of the things that has surprised me a little bit uh, in the early going here is the Sox sending Micah Johnson down to Charlotte and replacing him with Carlos Sanchez. Uh, at the time he was sent down, Johnson, you know, he wasn't doing horrible. He was hitting somewhere around 270 with a 333 on base percentage. Uh, the power numbers weren't there, but you don't expect them there. Uh, that said, he did just have two doubles in 74 at-bats. Uh, did the timing of this move surprise you at all? Well, you know, the thing, I, Brad, the way I see it is, uh, yeah, a little bit. A lot of people are expressing surprise, but really it seems to me that the Sox 
are in love with Carlos Sanchez. You know, if you listen to the broadcast, they think that this guy is just re- something really, really special. You know, he came through uh, with the walk-off hit the other night. I believe it was I believe it was Monday night against Cleveland, and th- it seems like the the organization and the, the media are really high on Carlos Sanchez. So that's kind of my take on it. And that's not so much about Micah Johnson. Obviously, if the guy had been hitting 400, you know, they would have kept him up, of course. But it seems to me that they're looking for, I won't say an excuse, but looking for an opening for Carlos Sanchez, a guy that the organization and the coaching staff and the media really seem to feel is someone who has something special and is going to be a guy who's going to be in the Sox lineup for a long time. Again, only hitting... Uh, uh, about 200 right now at this point, you know. So you can't say yet that he's he's gotten there, but he's a guy who seems to have a lot of promise. So I think it's more about Carlos Sanchez, or at least as much about Carlos Sanchez as it is is or was about Micah Johnson. Well, and Sanchez adds a little bit of a different dimension than what the Sox have. Uh, the Sox they kind of struggle a little bit defensively, and Sanchez is a huge upgrade with the glove uh, from Micah Johnson. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah, the errors, and I saw the Sox up in Milwaukee uh, last week. Uh, in fact, it was the only game that they lost in that series. Uh, the Sox were terrible in the field. They were just making errors left and right, and I don't specifically remember uh, if Micah Johnson was kicking the ball around, but it seemed like everyone was. It was uh, just, just a, a terrible showing. And you know, the errors, you know, obviously they, 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 they kill you, they put extra runners on base, and it just is demoralizing as well. So, yeah, the, the errors have been terrible. The Sox have not been good with the glove. Getting a little bit better lately, not putting those extra runners on. But, yeah, I think Carlos, Chance, Carlos Sanchez uh, seems to have be given that combination up the middle with Alexi Ramirez that the Sox used to have with Gordon Beckham, who, of course, is back with the team, and he's going to be in the lineup tonight. But, uh, yeah, that, that, that could be it as well, that, that defensive presence. Maybe that's what you look for first, defense, and then hope the offense follows. Terry, have you seen any difference in the way Robin Ventura is handling uh, his in-game strategies between their successful run lately and earlier in the season? No, you know, I, I, I don't, but the, those things are, are, are tough to pick up on. I feel like, again, the pitching has been bad, and the, pardon me, the pitching has been better, and the hitting has been more timely. I don't know. I don't know if Ventura is taking a different approach or not. I, it, it doesn't seem to be much different. You know, Robin Ventura, as you know, He's kind of hard to read, you know. He's pretty much uh, even keel no matter what happens, whether they've won five in a row or lost six or seven in a row. So Ventura's approach, I'm not seeing much of a difference at this point. He seems like a guy who feels like he has a talented lineup and he's going to ride it out, and I think he knows that his job is to stay even keel. You know, that, that said, you know, managers do something. I feel like so often in baseball, managers are just kind of given, you know, a pass that, that's not about them. But... Yeah, I think Robin is a good manager, but I don't think he's really changed his approach too much. I think he's being patient, and I think that's what Robin Ventura was brought in to do best. Let's switch over to the Bulls a little bit. Oh, do we have to? Yeah, we do, because (laughs) I've got some thoughts, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, Is this the end of Tom Thibodeau? Uh, I I, I think it is. I don't see how he comes back. Everything you're hearing, you know, I'm certainly – you know, not not privy to anything that people who listen to sports radio uh, haven't been hearing. It seems like Thibodeau, it's, he's so frustrating. He is a, such a talented guy, such a great coach. The teams have always played hard for him. The Bulls have been played very hard for him the past five years, except this year. And Thibodeau is incredibly stubborn. He doesn't seem like he wants to make a change. Everyone is asked to make changes. You know, players are asked to get better. Players are asked to work on their defense, work on their free throw shooting, whatever it might be. We're, in our jobs, asked to make changes. Tom Thibodeau seems like he's the type of guy who feels like he's the smartest guy in the room, and he probably is, and he doesn't seem as if he wants to change to 
accent more on the offensive side of things and doesn't want to give time to these young players, these young, inexperienced players, because they don't have the defensive seasoning. And I think that's his downfall here, his stubbornness. So, yeah, I think think we're not going to see Tom Thibodeau here with the Bulls next fall. And it's a shame, very talented coach and talented rosters they've had over these last five seasons. But obviously, you know, coming up short. Well, I've had a lot of debate with Bulls fans about uh, the Bulls kind of making it known that they're unhappy with Thibodeau and that they want to cut ties with Thibodeau. And people arguing with me that this will uh, diminish his value on the trade market. As we know, Thibodeau's still under contract. So in order for the Bulls to move him, they'd have to either fire him or they'll trade him. And the latter is the most likely scenario. But now there's word that the Orlando Magic are interested. The, yeah. the Pelicans are interested. The Lakers are interested. I could see a scenario where the, the Cavaliers would become incredibly interested. It seems to me that uh, that letting people know that Thibodeau is available won't diminish his value at all. And, in fact, the Bulls may be in line to get a pretty nice haul in return. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think there are many teams out there who would love to have Tom Thibodeau. And if you told most Bulls fans five years ago that what would happen under Thibodeau and with Rose's injuries, I think they would be pretty happy you know, with what the Bulls did. Of course, disappointed that they haven't gone to the finals, haven't won a championship. But if you said, well, Derrick Rose is going to miss so many games, so many other guys are going to get hurt, I think that they would say, hey, Thibodeau's done a great job as a coach, which for the most part, again, he certainly has. But yeah, teams, I think, would be lining up for a chance to have Tom Thibodeau as their head coach. And if the Bulls uh, can hold out and uh, wait for a good offer, then I think they could get probably a second-round pick. Uh, for him, but but we'll see. You know, part of me, Brad, hopes it doesn't happen because he is a good coach, and this is a talented roster. You hate to, you know, as a Chicago sports guy, how many seasons we've suffered through through all teams not having either of those things to say. So uh, it, it's tough. But I think Thibodeau probably is going to leave town. We'll see what happens. Well, and you look at the Bulls' history. I mean, this has got to be their most successful era without Michael Jordan in uniform uh, in the history of the franchise that that Thibodeau has uh, has ushered in. Yeah, yeah, I, I would think so. It certainly brought a lot of pride back to the franchise. And, you know, it's funny, uh, the Golden State Warriors here pushing this run uh, possibly to the NBA Finals. The Bulls back in the 70s faced the Warriors uh, in the Western Conference Finals, I believe, a couple of times. And th- that era is forgotten. But certainly since Jordan, yeah, this is uh, a, a great run that the Bulls have had. And, and I have to take this moment to say that, you know, as much as it can be frustrating that the Bulls have come up short, really the Bulls in the last 15 years or so since Jordan left, have usually been a pretty good team. Yeah, we had those miserable years there, uh, those first few years uh, uh, back in the Tim Floyd era. Uh, But for the most part, the Bulls have put together a pretty good franchise over the years and have had a lot of good teams. The coaches have come and gone. But, yeah, this has been a a, a really good era, and it's a shame that injuries and LeBron James have kept the Bulls from reaching the finals. Uh, And bringing up LeBron, that's a great point because the NBA is such a a superstar-driven league. Unless you have one of the two or three best players in the world on your team, chances of actually winning a title are are almost none. I mean, there are a few exceptions over the last 30 years, but not many, and those exceptions usually had some form of a three-headed monster, whether it was, uh, you know, Garnett and Pierce and Allen in, in Boston or yeah. San Antonio with uh, with Parker and Duncan and Ginobili and the Bulls they've got a nice roster they've got a competitive team but they don't really have that kind of star power that really would make you think that they are a title contender 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I agree, uh, and the, the, it's it's strange that. Uh, what happened with them this year is that when you don't have that star power, when you don't have one of the, as you said, one of the five or, uh, or ten best players in the league or a couple of those guys, then what do you have to do? You have to do what the 2004 Pistons did, one of those anomalies. You have to play amazing defense and play as a team. And the Bulls did that for all those years, except this year. And so that's what was, what was strange about it. This was the most talented roster under Thibodeau, and yet this was the team that did not play together, the team that looked lost, looked the Bulls have often looked lost on offense under Thibodeau, don't get me wrong, but looked lost on defense a lot this year, and worst of all, sometimes looked as if they just didn't care, and that's what happened in that last game, which was just uh, just just shocking. Maybe it shouldn't have been shocking because we saw defensive lapses all year long, but in the end against the Cavs, they looked like they didn't even care, and that was terrible, and that's something I never thought I would see uh, from a Bulls team, especially with Tom Thibodeau on the sidelines. One more for you, Terry. Word is that uh, that Hoiberg is the top choice of Bulls brass, and he brings with him a bit of a faster running offense, a little more dependent on the three-point shooting. Uh, do the Bulls have the kind of players that can execute that kind of offense, a, a faster pacing, more outside shooting offense? They have some shooters, but a lot of them are pretty streaky. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I think they do. Quick, quick answer. I think they do. You know, Miritich is a bomber. Doug McDermott, we don't know because he spent the whole season on the bench. But let's just go back to his last year at Creighton. He's a shooter. He's a young guy, so he can run. Uh, we certainly know that Jimmy Butler can run. Taj Gibson is not an offensive player, but he can run the floor. So you have some shooters and you have some young guys who can run. And Derrick Rose, not as fast, not as good as certainly as he was a few years ago, but he can run. And Derrick is not a three-point shooter. We certainly saw that this year. But, yeah, they do have runners and they do have shooters. So, yeah, uh, I, I think Hoiberg is the type of guy who uh, they could respond to, and that seems to be the new trend now that uh, college coaches coming to the NBA are more in vogue. You know, we see that with Billy Donovan going to the Thunder. So that could work. We'll see. Why doesn't a goal count if you hit it in with your head in hockey? It should count, Brad. It, it should count. If you could do that, it's cool. It should count. Well, it, it should count. I understand the, <laughs> ki- the kicking thing with the skate, it, but it should count. <laughs> You know, that that was a, a deliberate move to score a goal. I, I don't see what the problem with that is. I mean, it doesn't even happen enough that it should be a rule. Yeah, if you can do that, it should count. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right, he's Terry Keshner. He's a writer, editor, reporter, and sports anchor. That's a mouthful at CBS Radio. <laughs> WBBM 780 and 105.9 FM. That's also a mouthful. Uh, You can find him on Twitter, TK9710. Terry, thanks for the time. We'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Barrett. Before I wrap it up for the week, I want to talk about something that's not sports. I want to talk about David Letterman. I grew up watching Letterman. As a 36-year-old, his late-night show on NBC started far before I was old enough to watch, but... As I got older and occasionally was allowed to stay up late, it was always Letterman that I looked forward to watching. Dave was different than the others. Carson was old, Leno was vanilla, but Dave was sarcastic and subtle, and it spoke to me. Carson and Leno were country and pop, and Dave was rock and roll. His jokes didn't come from a specific punchline. It came from him being just a little odd and a little goofy. It seemed what made Dave funny wasn't the jokes... It was just him being himself. His interview style was also something I always had a great respect for. Never one to brown nose the line of celebrities at his couch. If you didn't like a guest, you could see it, and he'd call them out on their arrogance, and to me, that was refreshing. As a child, I'd spend a couple weeks of summer with my cousins in Wisconsin, and Letterman was appointment viewing for us. 
As he moved to CBS and I got older, I'd lay on the living room floor with my mom trying not to sleep on the couch as she would switch back and forth between Letterman and Leno. That always drove me nuts because there was nothing that could happen on Leno's show that was worth missing a moment of Letterman. I haven't been a regular viewer of The Late Show for a good 10 to 15 years. Over the last couple months, I've watched nightly, and it's reminded me how much I loved that show and how big a part of my life it was. It helped shape my sense of humor, my desire to work in some form of show business, and it reminded me that no matter how important a person may be, they could always use a little knock off the pedestal once in a while. While late night had vanished from my viewing habits, there was something strange and comforting knowing that Letterman was there every night, just in the off chance I felt like watching. As the final scene rolled with the Foo Fighters playing Everlong in the intensive photo gallery scrolling across my TV screen, it was an odd feeling watching Dave age before my eyes. It was a stark reminder of the harsh nature of time and that 30 years can pass in the blink of an eye. Nothing lasts forever. And throughout life, we're often faced with the disappointment of losing things that we hold dear. When these changes come to fruition, life inevitably moves on, and so do we. It's easy to forget the decades that are now in the rearview mirror. And sometimes it takes something silly, like a TV show, to remind us. And that'll do it for this week's Second Winded Podcast. Special thanks to Terry Keshner from WBBM 780 and 105.9 FM. We'll be back next week with a brand new show for you. Until then, thanks for listening. So long.